1: Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE. Transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Paris SAGE Institute colleague, Ed Kless. And on today's show, folks, we're so honored. We have Professor Gary Hamill. I've been a longtime fan, Ed. How's it going?
2: It's going good. It's going good. I'm I'm thrilled to have Professor Hamill on as well. As I have been a longtime fan as well. Up, up on the shelf here. Got some books dating back, I think, to the mid-90s, as I recall. So Yeah. So let me let me read them in here. I'm gonna read his
1: bio, just a short bio. This doesn't this doesn't do him justice. But Gary Hamill is a visiting professor of strategy and entrepreneurship at the London Business School. He's authored twenty articles for Harvard Business Review. Published five books with Harvard Business Review Press, including The Future of Management from 2007, which was one of my favorite books. Um, the Wall Street Journal ranked Hamill as the world's most influential business thinker, while the Financial Times labeled him a management innovator without peer. He lives in Northern California, as do I. Welcome, Gary, to the Soul of Enterprise.
0: Hey, Ron. Hey, Ed. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Oh, well, listen, we uh, I just finished your book. Humanocracy uh, shortly after it came out. I got it right the day it came out, and I absolutely loved it, uh, as I loved your future management book. So I'm going to ask you the cliche question from a host that makes it sound like he didn't read the book. What is your book about?
0: You know, I guess the simplest way of describing it is how, how do we build organizations that are as daring and resilient and creative as the people who work inside of them? And, uh, you know, most organizations, they struggle to keep up with change today. They are often not the authors of game-changing innovation. And the data says that many of them are quite kind of soulless places to work, but that's not who we are as individuals. We, we have all the qualities our organizations so desperately need. So the book is really about how do, we, how do we get rid of that top-down, bureaucratic, rule-driven culture that still predominates in most organizations and build organizations where people can actually thrive.
1: Right. And I just before we dive in, Gary, I just have to ask you this, too. Is, is this book a logical extension of the future of management? Does your thinking kind of evolve over the years?
0: Yeah, you know, I, I think the argument in the future of management was simply to say that um, management, the way we lead, plan, organize, allocate is a very important area for innovation. In fact, if you go back through industrial history and even through military history over 800 years, you find that long-term advantage came less from technology, from products, from strategies, but really from new ways of working together that unleashed human capabilities. And so we were simply making that argument in the future management, that We really have to start thinking just the way, you know, we think about today, innovating in our business models. You have to think about innovating in your management model. The, 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 the current book, Humanocracy, is much more a guide on how to do that with some, I, I hope, some very clear aiming points and, and, and we make the point that as daunting as this challenge is of kind of uninstalling bureaucracy and building something better in its place, anybody can start wherever they are in their organization to help, help create that kind of future.
1: Right. Because one of the things you say is once a company hits a certain threshold in size, that bureaucracy, bureaucracy starts growing faster than the organization itself.
0: Well, I you know I see that living living in Silicon Valley, I see all these young, amazingly vibrant companies. and and in fact, I would argue the primary advantage that a young company has or an incumbent is usually not that they have like a business idea nobody ever has thought of, but they're lean, they're fast, they're flat, they're open, they're free, and and you know they, they just they just move much quicker. And yet, you know, I see this again and again. Once you get to a couple of hundred people, you start to hire kind of the professional managers. They bring in all the systems, the structures that they're familiar with, kind of try to bring some order to the place. And, and yeah, right about at that point, bureaucracy starts growing fast. You have more committee meetings, more layers, more staff groups, uh, empl- you know, em- employees feel more, more constrained. They get slotted into roles. Uh, they have to ask permission for just about everything. And so, and then typically, you know, that, that, that just continues apace. And, 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 and then you end up with, you know, the typical large organization that has eight, eight management layers, is sclerotic, uh, legal has to sign off on everything. So I, I think, uh, you know, and, and, and we've been told, and I think it's a lie, but we've basically been told there is no way to, to do things at scale. There is no way to get the control and the consistency you need at scale, Without having the trappings of bureaucracy. And in, in the book, I, I think, I hope I convinced that that's not the case, that you can build a highly disciplined, highly focused, highly efficient organization and still have basically none of the trappings of not the big staff groups, not the multiple layers, not the rule driven culture. And it takes some imagination to create an alternative because the default setting is let's just like run, run the model that we see all around us every day.
1: You talk about bureaucracy being a tax on human effort, effort and uh, you know we need to get rid of this. And I loved how uh, you quoted the late Carl Deutsch, I think, is uh, who observed that uh, bureaucracy is the ability to afford not to learn. <laughs> and I, I thought that was great. Are, are you confident this can be done?
0: Well, I think I've seen enough examples to, to, to believe so. Um you know i one of the one of the most compelling examples and i know them quite up close is the chinese appliance maker hire they own ge appliance in north america and i i first got to know hire, uh more than a decade ago their ceo and chairman zhang rumen came to visit me after i'd written uh, ron uh, the, the the future management and he said hey gary you talk about an organization that's a network not a hierarchy has anybody ever done this i said i don't think so he said we're going to do it but but one of the things he said that they I'll, I'll never forget. He, he said, I want to build an organization where everyone is their own CEO because he added, people are not a, 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 a means, they're an end in themselves. And I think if you look at what Hire has done, this is a, a 50,000 person organization in China, 80,000 people around the world. They divided an organization, their organization of 4,000 micro enterprises so you, everybody today works in a small startup at higher this big industrial company. Uh, every one of those little micro enterprises is guaranteed three freedoms, the freedom to set their own strategy, the freedom to organize as they see fit, and the freedom to distribute rewards. Uh, everyone in those micro enterprises has a big financial upside, depending on how their little business unit does. They can invest in those units and get a, get a, get a dividend uh, based on, on, on performance. And so you know, I see that and it's, it's, it's clear that you can build a, a kind of federation of entrepreneurs. That size does not have to mean that you're slow, that you're, you know, that, 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 that you're no longer innovative. And yet examples like hire are still extraordinarily rare, but there's enough of them. You know, I, all, I also tell the story to just kind of switch to a completely different industry. Uh, a, a, a Dutch company, a Birdzorg, uh, it's the largest provider of home healthcare in the Netherlands, uh, founded in 2006 by an amazing guy, Jas de who, sa- who said, I want to build a company that's all humanity and no bureaucracy. And today they have, they have 16,000 nurses and caregivers working in, in small teams of 12 across the Netherlands. Each team is really its own business. They find their own office space, they hire, uh, um, they manage their own professional development. And yet, they're all linked together. These more than a thousand teams—they're linked together by an online platform where they share best practices, where they level up. Uh, The performance of every team is visible to every other team. There's no place for mediocrity to hide. And so, you look at an organization like that, Ron. I remember, like when I got to know them, I go, "Wait a minute, you're running a 12,000-person organization? Sorry, 16,000-person, delivering a, a a highly regulated service, healthcare." And you're doing this with 35 on-demand coaches with 50 people in IT and two-line managers. So you think you know there's some there's some things you can't unsee, right? And so when you see a company that's beating its competitors on all fronts and you have a span of control of one to eight thousand, you kind of notice that. And so, yeah, I think there are enough alternatives, others that we can come back to that. Yeah, this this can be done. Now, here's what's a little worrying though, Ron, some of these examples, uh, uh, Birdzog is relatively young, Hire has been on this journey only for about a decade, but we have other examples like W.L. Gore here in the United States, New Core Steel. These companies go back 40 years. 40 years we've been talking about them in business schools, the CEOs have been visiting these companies, and yet, you know, they're still aberrations. They're still, you know, uh, 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 kind of out on the fringe. So we also have to say like, guys, if, if we have these models that have been around for a, for a while and we know they outperform because we can see the data, like without a doubt, they have much higher productivity engagement. Why are they still rare? So I also try to answer that question in the book and uh, give some ideas on how we make them less rare.
1: Yeah. Well, you, I love this line. You say America is a country that was invented by geniuses to be run by idiots. Uh, bureaucracies by contrast seem to have been designed by idiots to run, to be run by geniuses. And, I just love that because you're right. Creativity is not narrowly distributed. Just look at YouTube and Wikipedia, just to the uh, yeah. Linux.
0: All, all of those examples, you know, it's, it is crazy because if you think about, you know, that typical top-down organization, and, and this is true, even in relatively small organizations, but we kind of assume that the CEO or a few people at the top are going to be the ones who set strategy and direction. And so, uh, you know, and come up with the big ideas. So, so almost by definition, our organizations are kind of like a caste system that distinguishes between the thinkers and the doers. You know, executives and workers, uh, the clever and the compliant. And we waste an extraordinary amount of intellect uh, by virtue of that prejudice. Uh, and and by the way, I will tell you that you know, if you look at a typical company, the people at the top. Who've been there a decade or two? They often uh, feel a need to defend decisions that were made years ago. Uh, the likelihood that that group is the group that sees the future is close to zero. You know, if 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 our companies were led by prescient, visionary CEOs, we wouldn't again and again and again see the old guard miss the future. But that, you know, I, you know, where I live here in Silicon Valley, that's the way we bet we bet that the old guard are, are not gonna move fast enough. And that, that's not because they don't have enough resources. They have a plenty of cash, they have plenty of customers, they have technology. But, but what you find in, that, in, those, in those pyramidal organizations, Ron, is that we've given a small group of people to hold the organization's capacity to change hostage to their own personal willingness to adapt and change. And so these organizations struggle when the leaders fail to write off their own depreciating intellectual capital and and, and are not getting the best out of everybody else. And, you know, there, 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 it's a deep prejudice, Ron. You know, I, I'd like to say that, that uh, you know, we were beyond this, but I don't think so. You know, I, I'll give you a couple of quotes. The former CEO, twice CEO at Procter & Gamble, uh, A.G. Lafley, He was quoted not very long ago in a magazine. He said this. He said, the CEO can see opportunities and make the big calls others can't. I I have to say, I've met A.G. Lafley. He's a wonderful guy, but I don't think that's right. I I don't think the CEO is in any way uh, 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 in a privileged position to see the future coming, Uh, if, if anything, the opposite. They tend to be concerned consumed with internal governance issues and dealing with the board. Uh, they're not out there every day talking to customers. They're not on the bleeding edge of, of change. But I, I saw one study that said CEOs spend 2% of their time talking to their customers. And even worse, I can tell you, they're talking to the big customers they already have, not the ones they never thought about. And so just by definition, you know, I, I think a lot of leaders are using a new uh, learning a new definition of hopelessness which is trying to compete in a networked world with a top-down organization that simply cannot be done
1: excellent well gary unfortunately we're up against our break this is just flying by but this is great thank you so much and uh, ed, folks we'd like to remind you if you want to contact ed or myself send us an email to ask at we'll post full show notes at the soul of along with gary's books uh, and other information about them. And now we want to hear from our sponsors.
2: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. Have you ever read a book that changed
3: your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too.
4: we're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
2: On The Soul of Enterprise today is Professor Gary Hamill. The book is Humanocracy, Creating Organizations as Amazing as the People Inside of Them. And uh, Gary, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the set part three of your book, which is a, the principles over practice. First of all, talk about uh, why it's important that we look at these companies, not so much by their unique practices, but by their belief systems instead.
0: So I think it's a great question, Ed. you know, Ed. We, we reach a point in any field of human endeavor where you can't solve the new problems with the old principles. So, you know, you go back a couple hundred years ago when in the Enlightenment we started to think about how do you create self-governing democracies? We couldn't do that by starting with the divine right of kings, right? Like you just had to make a break with, 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 that, old, with that old thinking. And I think that's where we are in, in business. You know, I think we'd all, we'd all agree today we need organizations that are fundamentally more capable than the ones we have. Not a little bit, but fun. You know, there's much faster organizations that can outrun change that are daring and so on. And yet, you know, we're, our organizations are built on a a set of principles that that are designed to solve another problem. 150 years ago or so when when industrial bureaucracies got invented, the problem we were trying to solve was efficiency at scale. And that led people to a certain set of principles around standardization, specialization, formalization, routinization, and so on. And those are perfectly good principles for solving that problem. But if you want resilience at scale or innovation at scale, those problems are very, very little help. So, you know, typically when, you know, particularly as leaders, as managers, and, and even as, as as professors, when we go out and we look at organizations, we put all of our energy into what they're doing, right? We want to know what practices do you have, what processes do you have, how do you hire people, how do you do performance review, whatever it may be. But I, but I think the more important question, particularly when you're looking at, at, at more radical organizations is, not what do they do but how do they think because you know many many of the stories we tell in the book and and we have a wide gamut of companies there in healthcare and steel making and appliances and financial services and and if you look at their practices they're all quite different it's very hard to find really points of commonality around practice process but when you go deeper ed they all start with a kind of uh, the, the same overall kind of paradigm or worldview and very similar principles and I think, you know, the most important place to start probably is is, is kind of with a worldview. Because in in the old bureaucratic model, um, the, the basic thought was organizations, institutions, hire people, individuals, to make products and services. So in that rendering, the individual is an instrument, right? You're hired just as an instrument. In fact, what do we call them? Human resources. resources. Like, which is just like awful. I just, I can't <laughs> believe we'd ever got trapped in that language. But anyway, resources. But but you know what? What you know from your own private life is if you're in a relationship where you're treated as an instrument, that's not a good relationship, right? If Ed is the guy who picks the kids up, gets the groceries, keeps gas in the car, and like that's what Ed's good for, like that's like whatever. That's not going to work. Um, and so, all of the organizations I profile in the book they flip that thinking. So what they're thinking is no, no, the individual. Is, is is an agent, not a resource. The individual joins an institution to make an impact in the world and to earn a living. But in that second rendering, it's the institution, not the individual, that's the instrument. So when you start from that, you know everything changes. When you start looking at the problem, not as bureaucracy does, how do I maximize compliance, but you think about how do I maximize contribution, everything changes. So if you, start, you know, if you ask that, okay, how do I maximize contribution? You say, well, you know, what is it that helps people to flourish? Well, we know people flourish when they feel like owners, when they feel agency and control over their own lives. So ownership is a very important principle. Uh, 77% of millennials want to start their own business. They want to own their business. It's just like we all want to have that agency. Uh, we, we know that her, human beings flourish when we feel in community, when we're around people we, that can trust, that have our back, that we're emotionally engaged in. Uh, and so community is a principle. Uh, we know human beings flourish in market economies and not centrally planned economies where entrepreneurship can flourish and we have choice in what we buy and sell. So markets becomes you know, a critical uh, a critical principle. As human beings, we flourish in open environments where we can learn and explore and, and learn new things where there are no boundaries on our, on our learning. So, so you, you, you work backwards from, right, okay, human beings are agents what what drives human flourishing there's a set of principles maybe those need to be the principles that are baked baked into our organizations rather than the old principles of standardization stratification, and all the rest but i but I do think that uh and you know unless unless you start with a new set of principles you're absolutely bounded in 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 and the extent to which you can improve the way our organizations work and indeed how work works
2: Yeah, Ron and I had the saying that we we talk about, which is, can you imagine if you ever described your marriage as efficient? (laughs) How repulsive that would be. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, he's very efficient. I love that. He's very efficient. <laughs> um but I wanted to ask you, there's so many great things in there. Uh, but I want to turn your attention to the power of markets and, and talk a little bit about this because I think this is this is quite fascinating. The and the, the Ron and I about 10 years ago came across the notion of the prediction market and how that would be could be used inside organizations. And we did a couple of sessions on it, and I gotta tell you, it fell completely flat. No one knew what the hell we were talking about or like why this would even be a thing. But um the experimentation that you've seen, it's starting to work, it's starting to to get some uptick, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I, I think, you know, the, the, the idea of markets is very, very important. And prediction markets is part of that. There's, the, there's a couple of things we know about markets. Number one, we know that in the aggregate, markets tend to be smarter than individuals. So if you look at the New York Stock Exchange over the last 50 years, it has outperformed every company on the New York Stock Exchange. Because investors in their millions are very good at finding the next thing, right? Inside of organizations, there's all kinds of barriers of of moving money from the old thing to the new thing, right? Principally, you got the people running the old businesses, sitting at the top with with a disproportionate share of voice in the conversation about funding and so on. They have seats at the table. The future doesn't have a seat at the table in most organizations. By contrast, in markets, you decide, hey, I want to sell my shares in Google and buy shares in in Nvidia or whatever, you just go do it. And so, you know, what that says to me is, as organizations think about big opportunities, we need to have the whole organization looking at that, thinking about where's the best bet, rather than a few executives at the top. And this can be quite practical. You know, IBM uh, did a wonderful little uh, more than experiment a couple of years ago. Uh, they 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 invited two hundred fifty thousand, basically most of their employees, uh, into a a, a crowd uh, sourcing uh, process, asking two hundred fifty thousand to think about what are the new opportunities in AI and they got thousands, I think more than 8,000 ideas. They were all peer reviewed. They gave every employee some virtual currency they could invest in the best ideas. And I can tell you, you know, not not everybody's going to have a good idea, but people will tend to recognize the breakout ideas. I'm like, wow, that's like unbelievable. I would have never thought of that, it's amazing. And so really bringing the wisdom of the crowd to bear around these critical decisions, where do we go next? Opening up the strategy process to every single person in the company, I think, um, you know, that's that I think is a very, very critical idea. It's also how companies like Hire manage their internal coordination at Hire. Uh, every every, every uh, uh, unit is broken down into a microenterprise. So HR, finance, legal, all of these things are broken into these little microenterprises and they contract with each other. So let's say I'm a little unit, I'm building three-door refrigerators and I need some HR help to find some more talent as my little business grows. So I go to HR, I say, will you help me with recruiting? I write a contract with that little HR microenterprise, enterprise. And, and here's the kicker. In every one of those internal contracts, so, so the company is really just a web of contracts. In every one of those internal contracts, there's a performance clause that ties pay to the ultimate success of the product in the marketplace. So if I'm sitting there in that little HR unit, yes, I'm gonna, I'm gonna help you guys with recruiting. Uh, there's a clause that says, you know, if this product if our business does well with customers, you get a big bonus. So, here's here's a little question to think about. At least it's intriguing to me. In the average company, what percentage of employees have their compensation at risk depending on how you do with customers? We're supposed to live in a capitalist country, in a capitalist society. And yet 95% of employees have no stake in the future, right? They they are they are internal monopolies. They they're they're buffered from the marketplace reality. You know, what I've learned is customers can vote you into bankruptcy, right? You know, customers can vote you into irrelevancy. Ask Kmart, ask Kodak, ask whatever. And yet, you know, we build organizations where most people are not really accountable to customers. So at at, at higher, and it's perhaps a slight exaggeration, but but their, their CEO chairman, uh, Zhang Rumin, he said now, he says, we no longer pay our employees. Our customers pay our employees. And that's true for every employee. So um, yeah, when you really start to take the idea of market seriously, it changes everything, right? It changes how you do internal coordination, it changes how you do compensation, uh, and it changes how you make decisions. And I, I've, I've often find it I found it kind of weird because most CEOs will tell you, yes, they're fans of market economies, they believe in capitalism, so on and so on, and yet they run their organizations like centrally planned economies. You go like, really guys? Like, why is that? <laughs>
2: Yeah, that was a, a pull quote I had from the book as well. That's a it's a great concept. But we are up against our next break already. And I want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to ask TSOE. Of course, our Patreon where, page where you can get our bonus episodes, as well as this show commercial free and without interruption, is available at patreon.com slash TSOE. And that is sponsored by the group at 90 Minds. So if you need a mind, call 90 Minds. But right now, a word from our sponsor. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients.
1: Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Professor Gary Hamill, the author of Humanocracy. And Gary, one objection I can hear, and you actually anticipated this in the book, but I can hear somebody saying, how can you have a unity of purpose without unity of command? What's your response? Yeah,
0: I, you know, I think how you get an organization pointed in, 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 in the right direction is a critical question. and And I would say, and you do need, you know, you do need coherence. You do need Focus. this is not about everybody doing their own damn thing for sure but in my experience and the way i've worked with organizations the way we get that is you open up a conversation where do we go next as an organization what are the challenges we face what are the opportunities you face you ask people to put those ideas on the table you ask people to generate ideas and then you start to look for the patterns and the themes and 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 you create a collective purpose um uh i've you know, I'd love to provide some examples, but I probably won't for, for 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 the purpose of brevity. But what I'll say, when you open up that conversation to the entire organization and you and you, and you teach people how to think like business innovators, you ask them what are the opportunities, you will always be surprised. You will always get things that I can tell you nobody at the top was was thinking about. And so when when you do that, you will find that that you know. We, we did this recently with one organization. They, everybody would know them, about 3,000 employees in North America. Uh, they generated more than 8,000 business ideas. Uh, the, 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 the employees themselves kind of group them into themes. You end up with seven or eight core themes. And everybody's excited by that. They, they've seen the ideas that have come up. They've ranked them up and down against clear criteria. They've chosen the best of them. They see the ones that group together and go like, yeah, let's go charge. This is ours. So I do think you need aiming points as a company but I don't think those anymore can you you can't create those at the top they have they have no they they have they have no credibility nobody has any skin in the game they have to come out of a conversation with the organization itself but and when you do that people naturally want to make that future happen right you know so often I see a strategy exercise that's kind of more top down some people go maybe maybe they think in creative ways, but usually not. You come back with something that's very derivative. It looks like you bought it from some consultant. It's underdeveloped. There's, there's like nothing much underneath the, the headlines. And you go to the organization, and you go like, this is their stra- our strategy. You're like, huh? Like, what the hell is that? Like, why should I believe that? And so you spend the next year trying to educate people. You know, in, in fact, the craziest thing I hear people talk about, like, we need a strategy communication exercise. Like if you do strategy creation in the right way, you do not have to communicate it. Everybody's been part of it, right? You don't have to tell people they were there. They know they were there. So I think once you do that, and, and so strategy becomes created collectively, then, then uh, the organization is ready to go. They know why you got there. They've seen the ideas emerge. They're running fast, uh, but you do have to have a shared point of view to be sure. I, I, you know, I, I think the most important question in any organization is, what are the three or four ways we are going to reinvent ourselves and our industry over the next few years. And you need a point of view on that that is differentiated, but also has consensus. So if I asked independently 30 different people, I get more or less the same answer. If you don't have that, you don't have a strategy. And once you have it, uh, and if you've done it in the right way, you have a hell of a lot of commitment behind it.
1: You know, we hear all the time that people hate change, they're fearful of change, they're against change, and you think that's rubbish. You call us change addicts.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's always it's always uh, somewhat uh, uh, perplexing to me that a CEO can say, you know, they they all they all say, you know, we live in a world with so much change, we have to change faster. Everything's changing around us, like true, true. And and then <laughs> and then they say like, but people are against it. I'm like, like, well, where's all this change coming from then, right? Like monkeys or like whatever. I mean, no, people are not against change. Uh, everybody I know, you know, they. You know, they travel to new places. When we could travel, they read new books. They whatever. We we love we love novelty. But I think when when we say people are against change, what we re, what we really mean is, people are against change that is imposed. People are against change when they had no voice. People are against change that is better for the generals than it is for the grunts. Then people are against change. But that's why you know I believe that that going forward, every change program is going to need to be socially constructed. You want to change. Tell the organization. Here's a problem I see. Do you agree? How do you think we should solve it? What are your ideas? And then you'll find that people are ready and willing to change. But but you know, mostly change has meant something top down, something highly prescribed. Uh, and and no, people are you know people are not up for that.
1: You know, Max Planck made that famous remark about progress happens funeral by funeral. Do you think the old guard, the old current command, or the current command and control will give up the power and allow this change to happen?
0: You know, we, we tell an interesting story in the book about uh, about Michelin, the tire company. And a typical, you know, it's a wonderful company, but typically top-down, fairly bureaucratic, and people on the front lines not that empowered. There's a wonderful guy there, Bertrand Ballerin, who'd been a factory manager, and he, he thought that you know, the company was stuck in terms of performance unless they could empower frontline people. So you think about, okay, given that, and, and he was a relatively senior person, but he wasn't the CEO. So you think, okay, that, I, I believe we need to empower people on front lines. Like, what what does that mean? Like, how do you convince people to give power away? Where would you start? So he he did a, a simple, brilliant thing. He went factory by factory talking to frontline supervisors. And he said, would you be willing to run a year long experiment with your team to give your power away? I can't tell you how to do it. There's no mandate here. This is not a corporate program. I just think maybe this could work. And would you be? Would you? Would you sign on? So we found 37 uh, supervisors. Yeah, I like. I think this makes sense. I'm willing to try it. They experimented for about a year, mostly on independent tracks. He didn't. He didn't come with like you know. Here's the here's the manual. Here's the guide. Here's the metrics. He just said like you know it was. He had like one slide. He said you know we want to go from managing to mentoring from. Telling people uh, how to telling people the the what and the why is as simple. He said, "You guys figure out how to do this." At the end of a year, he brings these thirty seven people together. Almost without exception, they have remarkable stories to tell, and 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 everyone, every leader there, every supervisor said, "My job has gotten better." You know, I I don't like being a micromanager. I don't like I don't want I don't want to be daddy or mommy to grown ups so like my go- job got better i'm helping these people grow i'm working on more interesting problems i'm improving the system but i'm not trying to do the work they could do they could do better Well, what was interesting in that uh, ron is that the, the the plant managers saw these teams they didn't even know about them at the beginning but they saw these teams and they saw them start to outperform all the other teams they got gosh this is interesting so pretty soon by the end of the year, there were, there were entire plans. Man, they had to sign it. Like, we want to do this. How do we do this at the plant level? So then you start doing it across about uh, six plants. Those plants start putting pressure on head office. Like, why are, you, why are you laying out these plans? Why are you, like, this is something we can do. So I think there's a secret, a very important secret in that. I don't think you can uninstall bureaucracy top down, right, if, for, 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 for two reasons. First, it's too complicated right? Mm-hmm. When they started, nobody, nobody had a map in a global tire company. How do you empower front lines? There was like, there's no map. We got to learn. We got to discover this ourselves in a way that works for us. So this is a complicated problem. We have to solve it for ourselves. If you oppose it, it's not real to us. So that's one reason. You just can't make these kinds of complex changes without letting them, I think, emerge internally. The second reason is if you start from the top, you immediately run into a wall of resistance because you have people who've spent their entire lives learning how to accumulate and use bureaucratic power. And I I tell you, Ron, I see this again and again, I see very progressive CEOs. They know, they know today that their, their, their real problem is not the operating model. It's not the business model. Their real problem is the management model too many layers too conservative too slow. And they feel powerless to change it. because first of all, they're, they're looking for a template. They're looking for an example. I tell them, it doesn't exist. You look at every one of the companies that I profiled in my book, They all have the same principles. They all build the thing that worked for them. This is something you build. This is not plug and play. But they all, they all just want like, well, just come I just, like, I just want a CRM system, right? Just like psh, put this in. Um, so you got to get over that. But the second reason I think they're very frustrated is, if you try to do that top down, and you you know you, you just don't have enough hours in the day to go one EVP at a time and say you need to change your role, you need to think of yourself as a mentor, you need to empower the people around you, like you you'll just like run out of life before you convince all those people. What happens when you do this more bottom up? You you build a coalition, because the the the, the whole secret in organizational change is. How do I build a coalition for change that is more powerful than the coalition for the status quo? And that means you got to get a bunch of volunteers, you got to kind of crowdsource this. You got to get act, you got to find the natural activists, let them start working on this, support it. And then and, and what you find is by the time anybody really notices, they've already demonstrated that this approach works. They already have a lot of a lot, you know, a lot of supporters across the organization. It becomes very hard for any single person to say no so you you really have to think about like this combination of a hacker an activist kind of a guerrilla fighter and say let me start from where i am let me let me get a few colleagues on board let's let's do something real let's talk about the results let you know let's let it propagate but don't spend any time going trying to convince the evps that this is the right thing to do cuz like i, I you 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 you'll, you'll get stuck there for sure
1: Right. right. It reminds me how the two ladies who started the results only work environment at Best Buy, they just went out and did it. They didn't ask for permission. They did. I know it, those ladies. And, That's a yeah, wonderful, yeah.
0: wonderful story. Absolutely. You know what? One of the stories I tell in my book, and it's a dear friend of mine, a woman named Helen Bevan, And she was kind of in the middle of, of, of Britain's national health system, which is one point seven million people and as bureaucratic as they come. And this is this is 2013. She was talking to some young doctors who are immensely frustrated to find themselves at the start of their careers in this giant organization with all the mandates, all the rules. And they said, like, where's the patient in all of this? And so Helen realized, hey, we got to rebalance this. We got to put the patient back front and center. So she did the simplest little thing. They found a little social platform. I don't even remember what it was. And they put up a little pledge a place where anybody can go like one page form. Here's what I can do in my job to improve patient care. And so just using Twitter and social media, she, she started asking will you go sign the pledge? So in 90 days, they had 187,000 pledges. The next year when they did this, they had 800,000 pledges. Wow. She never asked the permission. They, they gave it a big grand title, change day. Never talked to the CEO, head of HR, no. She says like, why wouldn't I do this? And I think, you know, a lot of us, we have learned helplessness, right? We, we think like, well, if you don't, I mean, observation. So I've spent, you know, I've spent a lot of time in management conferences all over the world, as you would expect. And so typically you hear a couple of kinds of talks. You hear a CEO and over the years that's changed, right? Today, maybe it's Elon Musk. 20 years ago, it was Richard Branson, whatever. But you hear a CEO, talk about what they've done and go like crap that's amazing but like what am i gonna do like i'm not the ceo or you hear somebody tell you how to be better in your job right and well okay, okay that's useful but what you never hear and yet is the is the whole point of my book ron what you never hear is somebody tells you how do you change the damn system when you don't own the system but that's really the only sort of change that matters and as long as we're in that app, in, in, that, in that environment of Learn us it's like, I'm not the head of HR. I'm not the head of IT. I'm not the CFO. Like, what, what do you expect me to do? Like, you know, you're, you're stuck. You're stuck. And so that's why we take some time to talk about how do you build your own hack? You know, I, 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 think, I think about, uh, about uh, uh, Linux, you know, the most popular software in the world today. On most smartphones, runs the web. You know, uh, Linus Torvalds, ultimate hacker kind of starts it in the early 1990s. And today there's 25 million lines of code and uh, 15,000 contributors and so on. But, but but Linus said one thing, I'll paraphrase, but super, super important. He said when it comes to changing things, a massively parallel process with fast feedback beats a top-down design. Massively parallel process beats a top-down design. And I think, you know, that means all of us have our role to play. All of us have to start. we got to throw off the learned helplessness. And, of course, today we we have an advantage like Helen Bevan that, that, that nobody had a decade or two ago. Now we have social platforms. You can start a conversation in your company. You can invite other people to be part of it, you know, irrespective of rank or whatever. You can do that. And so, uh, you know, we are lucky to, to live at a time when our organizations are becoming more vertical or more horizontal than vertical. And we can use that to make this kind of change. But only if you say, you know, I, I understand, I have a choice here. I can whine about this or I can hack it, but that's like, I get to choose.
1: Right. Well, like you say, Gary, we created this, we can, we can undo it and replace it with something better. Unfortunately we're up against our next break. Ed's going to take you home on the last segment. Gary, but I just wanted to say thank you. What an honor to be able to chat with you. I'm a longtime fan. Keep up the great work, please. You're needed. Uh, and uh, folks, uh, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at varisage.com And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Sage.
4: us on Twitter at Voice America TRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN.
2: Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients.
4: And folks, while we
2: are doing our best to try to get to some of the great nuggets in Gary Hamill's book, Humanocracy, Creating Organizations as Amazing as the People Inside Them, we are only scratching the surface. So we really implore you, go go buy this book and read it. Don't just buy it, but actually read it, uh, But uh, because we think there's some great things that you can do in your organization. I, I want to turn your attention, Gary, to a, a subject w- with regard to the many of the folks who listen to this show. Uh, it's more uh, accountants, lawyers, people in professional services, and, and even with smaller organizations. What advice do you have for people who are in smaller businesses to avoid some of these traps that, that large organizations get ensnared in?
0: Yeah, I think you, you have to be pretty intentional as you grow if you want to inoculate yourself uh, because it just seems to happen like quite naturally. So, you know, I, I would, I would, uh, one thing I would do first of all is if you make a commitment to whenever you see any unit or team get to more than a dozen or 20, pick your number outside 50 people, you split it up. So don't, don't manage complexity by adding more layers, manage it by splitting things up and keeping units small. I think that would be number one. I think number two is make sure that every one of those units has a real P and L and uh so people feel truly accountable because you know what happens obviously on a startup everybody knows how you're doing right everybody feels accountable for like hitting your numbers and, and getting the business to be positive cash flow making it profitable but but as we get bigger you know and then we start to divide up as i said earlier there's more and more people who are no longer really feeling accountable for for the business and certainly not the customer so that would be my second thing you know make sure that everybody has a real PL uh for which they feel uh, accountable for their unit um invest in people's business skills. Uh, you know, I, I you know, it's, it's impressive to me that in a company like Southwest Airlines, every single person, gate agents, baggage handlers, pilots, they can tell you every factor that drives the airline's profitability. They know how they're doing on that month by month. They can tell you what a change means in, 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 in profitability and their bonus so so really invest in the business skills of your people so they have the skills they need to kind of be self self self-managing i would say that would be number you know number three um and and just avoid putting in layers uh if you want if you want collaboration and you want consistency find other tools make sure everybody's on the same platform you know create create some bridge groups, some discussion groups that can handle, uh, you know, the interdependencies across teams, but don't put in more layers uh, uh, to do that. And as, and insofar as I could, I would avoid having anybody who's, who is in a managerial role, distribute the work of managing to everybody. You know, I, I talked about birds are, they, they run essentially with no managers at all, but, but within in, in every small team. They've kind of divided up the work of managing within that team. There's somebody who's kind of the finance person, somebody who's kind of the HR person, somebody who's the commercial person, somebody's worrying about the the, the customer and, pa- and patient uh, quality and satisfaction. So you can divide those roles within those teams, but try to avoid creating a separate class of administrators because you know today, as I, as I said, you know bureaucracy is a product of its time, and, and when it was invented 100 and some years ago, you know the average employee was illiterate. Right. Not, not, not just, they just were illiterate and information was very expensive to move. Uh, now those things are not true anymore. And so we don't need, we don't need layers of managers to tell people what to do. They need to have the data, they need to have accountability. And then the, so, so if you make that commitment early on, I'm not going to add layers. I'm not going to create like people whose primary job is administration. Uh, I am going to make sure everyone has a and i I'm going to keep my team small. If you make a few of those commitments, now, that will pre- present its own complexities. You'll have to figure out how to do that and how to capture the benefits of scale and how to get consistency where you need it. But, but, but let me go back for a moment. You know, I talked about Nucor, the steel company. So they have, I think they have 75 divisions across the United States, uh, which is usually one or may, at most two factories. They all run as independent businesses. And they have basically no head office functions at all, I think, outside of finance. And uh, their, their head office is 100 people for a $20 billion organization. So you go like, how, how do you have these like completely independent businesses with very few managers? Where, where do you get the benefits of scale and size here? Well, you get the benefits because everybody is constantly communicating. Everybody can see exactly how, how other units are doing. So when a unit starts to do better, they are swarmed. They, they, they do what they call best marking visits. So at, at any point in time, there's hundreds of these going on, people visiting other plants, learning how. So the whole system is leveling up very quickly without anybody at the top telling you, this is the one way to do it. Because what, what I need, if I'm a unit and I'm struggling or I see another unit doing better, the, the goal is not to exactly replicate what they're doing. It's to go learn and be subtle and figure out, well, that will fit or maybe this doesn't fit rather than like one size, one size uh, 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 fits all. They, were, they, were, they had a very interesting experience a few years ago where uh, they, they had not. Nucor was not selling into the car business. Uh, they, they made constru- you know, s- s- steel for construction. It wasn't high quality enough to go into in, in, in to car parts. And so a couple of plant managers say, "Like, why can't we do this?" And they came together and ultimately a coalition. They decided to do this. They divided up the investment and they went and did it. And so you know, we our, our assumption is that the only choice we have is centralization or fragmentation. No, that's not true. So if you make those commitments early on as an organization uh, and, and the commitment to keep everybody informed, everybody has the same data, then I think you, you can keep bureaucracy at bay.
2: All right. Well, we've got about 90 seconds left or so. I wanted to ask you, where can people get, uh, get your, they can get your book, obviously Amazon, all that stuff, but where can they learn more about what you're doing?
0: So certainly please follow me at Prof, P-R-O-F, at Prof Hamill. You can find me on LinkedIn for sure. Uh, Humanocracy.com is where you can learn more about the book. And uh, I hasten to add, there's a free course there. It's about four and a half hours. Almost everyone I talked about today from Nucor, from Hire, from BirdSark, you got their CEOs all talking there. You can get all the video. It's all free. And, you know, go help yourself. Build a hack. When you do it, tell us about it. And uh, if there's something you want to ask me, I'm Gary at GaryHamill.com. As simple as that.
2: All right. Well, outstanding. We are so pleased to have you on today and we hope to have you back in the future. Uh, maybe there's a, maybe another book in the future at some point. Is that, is that a possibility we're going to, we're going to get one more yeah. out of you?
0: Yeah, maybe, maybe a <laughs> Maybe you
2: Gotta take a
1: deeper, though. <laughs> gotta sell this one. We gotta uh, sell this one, this one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: right. Well, thanks so much, Professor Gary, Gary Hamel for joining us on the Soul of Enterprise today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Ed, what do we got on store for next week?
2: Ron, next week we have our friend Mark Koziel Co- coming back to talk about his new role at Allennial, the Illenial the Group. I'm sorry. Excellent.
1: I'll see you in 167 hours.
2: Okay, guys. Thank you so
0: much.
1: Thank you, Gary. Appreciate it. This has been the soul of enterprise business in the knowledge economy sponsored by Sage transforming the way people think and work. So the organizations can thrive. Join us next week, folks on Friday, 4 PM. Eastern. In the meantime, check us out. At soul of enterprise.com. Leave us a review at ratethispodcast.com. And if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to ask TSOE at various Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.